If you think that the digital world is just another tool of implementation, you don't really want it anywhere near you. But that distance, that that kind of thinking, which is not just thinking, it's also feeling, right? It's people's feelings about their stature and their place in this system and whether they're important. But that gap is a key, key driver of our failure to implement. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. This episode was recorded live on stage at the Civitas Networks for Health Conference in D.C. The community of doers and policy shapers was the perfect audience for my guest, Jen Polka. Jen and I met while working at the White House. Now, I know that sounds fancy, but let me set the scene for you. 20 policy entrepreneurs tightly crammed in a room meant for five and practicing coordination by eavesdropping. I was there to advise the Obama administration on healthcare innovation and digital strategy. Jen was there to design and build what would eventually become the United States Digital Service, applying lessons from her experience founding Code for America to the federal government. Jen is a pioneer in making government work for people. In season one, we heard from policymakers and implementers about the importance of closing the gap between policy intent and policy impact. This episode is jam-packed with insights and lessons about implementing and scaling for impact from Jen's new book, Recoding America. So please welcome Jen Palka to The Other 80. Just by way of introduction, I'll share a few words about the podcast, The Other 80, and about Jen and her amazing book. 14 months ago, I left California and left uh, Manifest MedX and have been nomadic since. And one of the things I was really interested in working on was to bring forward new conversation, new dialogue about health beyond medicine, and specifically efforts within the Medicaid program and across public payers to fundamentally address social drivers of health and integrate our understanding of how to deliver medical care effectively combined with community health, individual population health, and addressing things like housing and food and loneliness and all of those things. And the reason I thought that was an important conversation to host was as I was leaving California, one of the most ambitious policy agendas I've ever seen, CalAIM, was being rolled out across the state. And it exactly followed this concept of addressing social drivers. And it requires health plans to work with and contract with uh, community-based organizations in ways they had never done to really address people's whole needs and whole person care. And what I was noticing in California was that while everyone was working really hard and the policy was excellent, there really wasn't the kind of feedback loops and iteration that I thought was so important. And I'm so excited today that Jen Palka is joining us to talk about her book, Recoding America. So I really, if you haven't read the book, encourage you to buy it today and read it. It's an amazing read, at times depressing. Um, but I think it'll give you both inspiration for the work you do, as well as lots of ideas for how to improve scale and implementation of ambitious policies like Kelly. I'm going to have her just talk a little bit about her background and herself, but then we'll dig into conversations about the book. So Jen, the first question I always ask all my guests is, 
What do we really need to know about you as we launch into this conversation? I really believe in the power of public servants to get this job done. And I think my journey has been one of understanding how public servants work, the constraints that they're under, and the incredible creativity that they can bring to the job. And so the book sounds like it's about technology. It sounds like it's about law. And really, it's about these two words people keep using that I never thought of, state capacity. But state capacity is really people. And I think that's what drives me is the realization that there are real people doing this work. They're doing, in many cases, just incredibly creative and imaginative and committed, passionate work. And so that's what really, that's what drives me. The core thesis of the book is that when we do the hard work, to pass ambitious policy, that often those policies don't turn into the impact that we had hoped for. And I think you have many layers of description of why that is true, but maybe just for the audience, talk a little bit about the core issue for why bold policy sometimes or often doesn't turn into the impact we want for humans. So I think there's a lot of reasons. Um, Let me start very high level, which is that we don't hold our elected leaders accountable to that. They think, because I talk with legislators, you know, they think that they are elected because they pass a law or policy, not because it gets the outcomes that we hope it will. And I don't really think anything's going to change until we can take off our professional hats in the healthcare system or in a bureaucracy and put on our hats as citizens and say, if you're going to ask for my dollar or my vote, I'm going to ask you about implementation because that's what really matters. But inside the bureaucracy, obviously, you know, we have the best of intentions when we pass a law or policy, but Something is happening or many things are happening that mean that, you know, what we intended isn't getting all the way there. One example I start the book with is records clearance. It should be pretty simple. If you have a felony conviction for marijuana and in your state, marijuana is decriminalized, no longer a crime, it should not be on your record. And that should be a pretty simple matter. But we have all of this cruft that has accumulated over many years that create the process by which you're supposed to go through that clearance process. And in the state of California, well, actually this was specific to San Francisco, a year after we decriminalized marijuana, only 23 people had started the process of getting that off their record and zero had gotten through it. So it's not a great sign (laughs) that we would have any achievement of the actual policy goals. And it was because the process had become so complex. And this is going to resonate with everybody here. Everybody complains about the paperwork and showing up and getting through all these bureaucratic hoops in healthcare. The same is true in the criminal justice system. And, you know, at first we tried to sort of streamline that, but in the end we sort of said, actually, these are just records in a database. We could find them we could change them. And then the job is just done without any of that paperwork. But that was a lens on implementation that had been previously unthinkable. And now it's working, but we have to have legislators think about the implementation of their laws when they are writing them, which means inviting different people 
who understand those layers of bureaucracy below them to the table much, much earlier than we have before. One of the anecdotes in your stories in your book is about a whole experience of working with the VA, and you and I partnered on that work. And there was a particular day that was a snowy day in D.C., which is a little unusual. And there was a meeting with an executive at the VA who talked about a concrete boat. And I think it really encapsulated some of the issues that you're talking about in terms of the difference between compliance and outcomes. Mm -hmm. But just retell that story of the concrete boat. I, it was, I had sort of forgotten that experience and that, and that story until I read it in your book. And it brought back many waves of memories around both the frustrations and I think the accomplishments that we had in that work. The talk about that concrete boat. That's right. It was a snowy day, early 2014, so a little while ago now, and we were working to stand up what became the United States Digital Service. And true to form, we thought the best way to establish the office would be to show what it could do and actually do something. So we proposed a discovery sprint, as they're called, with the Department of Veterans Affairs, this happened to be working on the Veterans Benefit Management System, which was running quite slowly at the time. And uh, my first sign that this was going to be an interesting conversation with this VA leader was that when we sat down with him, he said, it's so great that the White House sent somebody to verify that everything's fine now. <laughs> and I, we found out afterwards everything was fine because he had defined latency in the system as more than two minutes. So if you clicked on a link in VBMS and waited one minute and 59 seconds for the next page to load, you were not to report latency. But as I spoke with this leader, I kept asking him questions about the system because in my mind, the people responsible for the system have designed it. They have made choices about what was important and what it should do. And he kept deferring on all those questions and saying, you'll have to ask the program people or the procurement people or this person. And I finally pushed him on that and said, you know, why do you not have an opinion? And he said, I have spent my career teaching my team not to have an opinion on the business requirements. If they ask us to build a concrete boat, we'll build a concrete boat. And that was hard to hear. It was very hard to hear because I think in 2014, we had about 16 veterans a day committing suicide, most of them waiting for their benefits. And this was an abdication of responsibility that was tough. I really thought what we were doing there was trying to get people a seat at the table to make these systems better. And he didn't want a seat at the table. But I recognize the incentives that he were driving him, the reason he said that. We did create a system in which you're kind of just supposed to pretend that the requirements of any system are somehow objective and that anyone can go find them and then everyone's job is to fill them, all of them, not to make choices about what's important, not to sort of put your neck on the line and say, we're going to build a minimum viable product. This is the most important thing we do. We'll do the other things later. We're going to learn as we go. That is something that we have made very risky. And if we don't just blame people like this, this guy who I call in the book, Kevin, but actually look at the system that is driving his behavior, 
then we really have to look at how we change his incentives and say, you know, it's more important that we empower folks to build systems that, in the words of a different leader in the book, make sense to a person. And that's going to require a pretty significant change in thinking. It's not just like, oh, we need looser procurement rules or something. I, I wrote the book because I want to stress it is much more fundamental than any one rule, any one law, any one policy that's in our way. It's a way of thinking that gets us away from those concrete boats and towards a culture and a system where people say, nope, this has to make sense to the people who are going to use it. We're not going to overburden everything with all of the requirements. We're going to make systems that work. One of the stories that really resonated with my experience as a federal leader was this concept of the bureaucracy becoming the client. And I just remember so many times, whether it was hiring a team or getting grants out the door where 95% of my attention was how to get through the hoops and 5% of the attention was how to design a policy that worked for the intended yeah. purposes. But it, it's hard because without getting through the hoops, you can't actually get to the impact at all. Right. And so I just want to like play that with that a little bit and tease it apart. When you start to feel as a, as a civil servant, like <laughs> the bureaucracy itself is your client and not the citizens you're trying to help, what are your ways out of that box? What are some strategies you've seen that really work? This is the question I get asked most. I've been doing a lot of just sit downs with people in agencies, federal, state, local level. And one version of that question that I've heard more than once is, how do you know when you're becoming a Kevin? <laughs> Kevin being the guy who said the concrete boats thing. And it's a very natural question because that's the world you live in. And you're just trying day to day to like put one foot in front of the other. And today it may be, yeah, getting through this bureaucratic hurdle and the next day it's another one. And you can go home and feel like I didn't serve the public today. I met government needs, not user needs in the language of our friends in the government digital service in the UK, which I think we use here. And ultimately what I'm saying in the book is that the problem, again, isn't any one barrier, but is a culture. And it's a culture that flips the intent, right? And so if the culture is the problem, then the culture is also the solution. Now, that's a collective thing. And no one person has ownership over the culture. But as my friend Eric Liu says, and I think it's relevant here, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic, right? <laughs> we are all part of it. And so part of that is making sure you take care of yourself. So the inscription in the book is to public servants everywhere, don't give up. And, you know, I think the, the person in the book that I hope people most walk away wanting to emulate is Yadira Sanchez, who's at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. I don't introduce her until later in the book, but I, I think she is a role model for public servants everywhere outside of, you know, the healthcare space. Um, and she has been doing this job. Um, I think she's been at CMS now for 26 years. She'll correct me if I'm, I'll get a text in a minute when she tells me that I'm wrong by something, some slight amount. Uh, it's the only job she's ever had. She is the definition of a career public servant. So she's doing this in a sustainable way. And I think that's part of why I see her as a role model. 
But for many of us, we're going to have to take breaks and get some perspective. But I think also key to this is community, the community around you. So do you have someone like a Yajira who's saying, I hear that you are asking me to implement this law in this way. And the easy thing for me to do is to just go do it. And the harder thing is to push back and say, there's a different way to do this. And we're going to fight that fight to get to do it the right way. When you have even one person around like that, it starts to change the dynamic of the group and the culture. And you can either amplify and support that energy, or you can use what my mentor, John Lilly would say, stop energy, right? You can go, go energy, or you're going to get stop energy. We can all give go energy to that kind of bold thinking and support each other. It doesn't mean that the barriers are just going to melt away. They don't. Um, But it starts to give us that persistence to keep going and to not just just do it the way we're being told to do it because we know we have to get up tomorrow and fight another fight, but to make that investment in the change that we need to make and to support each other through it. I'm going to talk a little bit about Waterfall. And I love that you had a Clay Shirky quote because I think I put your book up next to Clay's books. If you haven't read them, everybody read that after you read Jen's. I think I had like the most Clay Shirky quotes per book than any other. I think if there were a reward for Clay Shirky quotes, I would get it. (laughs) But he has so many that are quotable. I think everyone in the room knows that the waterfall approach to producing software or producing product is to design and plan everything in advance and then execute your plan. Whereas agile is to break things into little pieces and iterate as you learn, right? So his quote is, waterfall amounts to a pledge by all parties not to learn anything while doing the work, which is pretty harsh. But I, I think an overarching recommendation that you have is to, and, and not just talking about software itself, but also talking about service design and talking about policy, how can we adopt an agile approach, not a waterfall approach? And I want to go back to the legislators and people writing regulations I think we are accustomed to applying an agile approach to building product, but maybe not so accustomed to thinking in that way about policy itself. And I'm curious, what are some examples of elements of policy, of law, of regulation that are agile? There are very few of those, and and we need to see more of them. But I want to pull back and make sure that people understand, because I get branded a tech person, right? And so I'm immediately talking about a software development tech, you know, methodology, and I prefer one over the other, and it gets really oversimplified. To me, the people who branded waterfall development the way they did, and the people who branded agile development chose those metaphors for a reason, and I'm using the metaphor to describe the entire implementation process. To me, it doesn't really matter what brand of Agile you choose or how you get the job done. I'm not an Agile purist by any means. But when you see us trying to implement law and policy by always having information flow from the top to the bottom and never letting it return back, That's the problem. There can be no software development involved in this at all, and we can still be in a waterfall. The reason waterfall is a metaphor 
is that water only flows one way. And of course, in this ecology system, it's always circular. We're only looking at this one part of it. But if you, in the process of implementing something, can't go back to the the layers above you and say, I know what you're intending, but the thing you've asked me to do is going to get a perverse outcome, then you have a waterfall process that has nothing to do with software development. And that's why so many teams that try to practice agile development in a larger waterfall context have so much trouble because they need to be able to return. They need to be able to go talk to others. So, you know, great example of this, you know, I mentioned Yadira, who's at CMS still, and she fights these fights in the implementation of MACRA, the Medicare Access and Chip Reauthorization Act. Everyone in the room knows what that is, by the way. This is probably yes, the first audience. Yes, I the only crowd who does. Yes, it's wonderful to be in this room. So she fights all these fights to say, I can't give you the right digital product unless we can have a, dis- you know, a discussion about the policy that's come down. You want me to build this Facebook for doctors that's a distraction. We're not going to do that. We've got to go back and clarify that that's not a priority. In fact, that's Natalie Cates who does that. They want her to make doctors go through the whole program the first year and then exempt those who are exempt instead of using last year's data to exempt those doctors. And she fights that fight and she wins it. Ultimately, MACRA does well. The quality payment program has much better feedback from doctors than people have expected and Yadira goes on to keep doing this. And, and, and an example I, I end with with her is that Congress asks her or asks CMS to do these quarterly data extracts of pharmaceutical data. And she says, wait a minute, quarterly data extracts, it's going to be very expensive. It takes us nine months to package up that data and get it out. It'll be nine months delayed. It's not real-time access. You know what would work so much better is an application programming interface. Let's invest a little bit more upfront to write an API, and then everyone can have real-time access, and it'll be far cheaper in the long run and better for everyone. And she goes and does it. I mean, she talks to stakeholders and then goes and does it. And let's pull back from the healthcare context for that for a second and say, people read this in the draft of my book, and they were like, you're describing a public servant who didn't do what Congress asked her to do. Like there was a literal thing in there and she did something different. And there's so much fear in that culture about literally doing exactly what was asked, but she's not punished for it. In fact, she is growing in her stature, in her number of teams and her ability to get stuff done. And I make the argument in the book that, of course, Congress isn't paying attention at all, like they're on to new things. But if they knew that, if they knew what she'd do, they would thank her for doing what they intended, not literally exactly the words that were written. And that's a kind of ambition and boldness that we need and we need to encourage in each other ultimately it'll be so much better if she could just go back to Congress and say, hey guys, hey folks, I'm going to write an API. Cool. <laughs> so, you know, that's the kind of feedback loop that would actually be better. So she didn't have to be sort of disobeying Congress, but of course she's not disobeying them. She's obeying them in the sense of what they were asking for instead of what the words they actually wrote. And I want to put that in the context of a set of steps that you describe which I think I've experienced repeatedly 
but hadn't quite been able to articulate or understand it in, until I read your book. And so going through these steps and then love to dig into some of these pieces. Policymakers, call that lawmakers, call that regulators, mm-hmm. um, view their work as the craft of the policy, not the execution of the policy. And, and you describe how that's instantiated in this concept of what is in essentially governmental, right? They don't see implementation as governmental. So if you go talk to a lawmaker and start asking about implementation, they're going to be like, listen, I'm, I'm on to my next thing, right? Then because we don't know when we're going to next get a, get a crack at it, we throw everything in. Rather than say, let's try this now in the law and then next year we can come back. No, there may not be a next year. I might have gotten this into a bill that was moving and I'm never going to get another chance. So you throw kind of kitchen sink approach, put everything in there. Then you have implementation, which tends to follow a, a waterfall approach, whether that's technology or just services, where there's a lot of planning that goes on. Because you have an ungovernable mess of requirements and a waterfall approach, things don't work as planned. So healthcare.gov is obviously the patent example of that, but there are many examples of that. Then when things start to falter, the tools that are used by both Congress and also by the White House are oversight and putting more pressure on the teams and having them get called up to the, to the principal's office on a weekly basis. I saw this happen at the White House. Yep. So how do you act when you're called into the principal's office? I mean, I just was called for a noise violation in my condo and I, I honestly like can't stop talking to my husband about this. It's a horrible feeling. And you start hiding, you don't share the real facts, you start hiding data, you start getting very defensive. And very, so there's a rule that I have to have 80% of my condo covered by carpet. So we're going to be very by the book about like the, we're going to measure out the 80%. This is what happens when you have a compliance approach. Yeah. You start to say, what are the rules? I'm going to follow the rules. No one's going to get me in trouble. I don't care if I'm making a ton of noise. I have 80% covered by carpet. And then um, that only, that's a vicious cycle, right? So it, it gets worse and worse. So Congress sees yeah. that the thing they wanted didn't happen. Now, they, next time they write a law, they're going to be even more specific about what they want. And mm-hmm. so I think what you're describing is how to break out of that cycle and into a virtuous cycle of caring about the outcomes, doing what is intended, not what was told, and things like that. I don't know. Could you say more? I think I'm, I was especially intrigued by this concept that there's so many places where policymakers view their role as like the purity of the policy and not the implementation. Yeah. And you learned a lot about why that is true. I'd love to hear more about that. Let me say two quick things. I think one effect of that is this idea, you know, talking about the book where we need to be using data as a compass to help us get where we are, right? And that should be really at the operational level. It doesn't need to constantly be called out in the legislative and and policy level. But because there's this lack of trust, Many, many bureaucrats experience data as simply like a, a basically a stick they're going to get beaten with. It's always negative. You're going to ask for data and then prove that you're doing a bad job. And so if it's more generously, I'd say it's a grade you get, right? But it really needs, if it's a grade you get, it's very hard to think about it as a compass, a tool that you're going to use. Like a grade is something you somebody gives you. A tool is a thing you use to do your job and and to get better. And the the dynamic you described, Claudia, is going to constantly make people think of data as as a grade, and it's not useful as a grade. It's not getting you where you need to go. So 
this whole problem of the gap between policymaking and implementation, between the people who make policy and the people who implement is again a cultural gap. And, you know, it's, 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 it's funny to talk to you, Carly, because you were there when I was learning this, you were sitting next to me and I learned this over time, but when we were all trying to stand up USDS in 2013 and 2014, and we were in the office of science and technology policy that really ended up landing at OMB, we were moving very slowly. And then of course, healthcare.gov had its problems. We like to gently call it. And, <laughs> My assumption was healthcare.gov's issues on launch, though, of course, it was successful in the end, were the ultimate proof that we needed some implementation capacity within the White House. So when we came back after the government shutdown, I thought, oh, my gosh, this is just going to go so fast now because everyone is aligned now about the need for this. But instead, there still was enormous amounts of resistance. And in researching the book, I was reading about other times in our history when people have said, we need this implementation capacity. Now, in this day and age, digital, the tools of the digital world are so intertwined with implementation capacity that comes out as a resistance to digital, but it's really a resistance to implementation. So back in the 90s, when Congress was putting forth the Klinger-Cohen Act, part of what that act was going to require was for the White House to have real responsibility for digital strategy, because it was becoming clear that digital was a big, big way that we would make things happen in the world, that we would deliver services, that they would improve the quality of government, essentially, not just the quality of services. And uh, OMB wanted no part of this. They said, we don't want digital strategy. And the quote from the deputy director of OMB at the time was, this is operational in nature and inconsistent with the policy role of this institution. And that guy is not a bad guy. He's just somebody who fundamentally believes, you know, what we've inherited from the British civil service back, you know, hundreds of years ago, which is this idea that government is run on the one hand by intellectuals who make policy, and on the other hand, what they called mechanicals, the people who implement policy. And if you think that the digital world is just another tool of implementation, it's just another thing that those mechanicals tinker with, you don't really want it anywhere near you. But that distance, that that kind of thinking, which is not just thinking, it's also feeling, right? It's people's feelings about their stature and their place in this system and whether they're important, right? But that gap is a key, key driver of our failure to implement. And so the moment of healthcare.gov was the moment of people realizing that you can't separate policymaking from implementing policy. And I do think that we're in a moment that we need to express and think about and drive where all of us are engaged in bringing those intellectuals and mechanicals back together and challenging even the idea that these are two different groups. They're not. We all should be engaged in the same business of getting the right ideas, getting them executed, and then having a feedback loop. So what we've learned 
in executing that policy informs the next one and and informs our ability to, as you said, Claudia, to make that policy actually more agile because we're learning from the people who are doing the implementation. And it's interesting because this conference has a tribe of people that I think sit at that intersection. So it has people that are building out public-private data networks that are a service to the policy goals and people who are involved in massive health improvement efforts at the community level who, again, often get their cues from the policies, whether it's CalAIM or other things that are passing. And that brings up another interesting question that I was pondering as I was reading your book, which is the nature of building that kind of network is ecosystem work. So I think what what one experiences if, uh, if you're building a data network or any kind of network is it's not until the vast majority of the parties, whether those are hospitals or doctors or health plans, have agreed together to do something that the value mm-hmm. accrues. And the 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 fuel for that is trust, cooperation, and each party getting some piece of value from the whole, right? And I was just trying to think about how your concepts apply into ecosystems. I also have observed that one of the things that government doesn't understand is the ecosystem. So they, they kind of think in a mechanical way, like I'm going to create macro and then everyone's quality is going to get better. It's going to be awesome. And then we'll like move on to the next thing. Well, no, it's an ecosystem. Does your technology support it? What kind of time does it take to do that additional thing? And does that take away from patient work? How does that interact with value-based payment and all the other things I'm doing, right? And so have you thought about or have any ideas or reflections to share about how might we think about implementation, scale, and effectiveness for ecosystems? I think in the healthcare world, you are at the extreme edge of ecosystems, but everything is an ecosystem. So one of the big problems, as you as you just mentioned, this sort of top-down policy approach is that it's deterministic. It assumes that if you do X, you will get Y. And that's true, like in a lab, (laughs) it's true with like one actor, but even before you get to large complex ecosystems where even one actor in that ecosystem is actually many actors, right? Like even before you get there, we live in a complex adaptive world where When you do X, you may get like X prime, you may get Y, you may get negative Y. And it's only, you're only going to know really what you get once the ecosystem absorbs it and all of those incentives on all of those many players sort of get applied to, to what you've done. And so this idea that you can know that this is knowable and therefore you're going to write something and it's going to get implemented and it's as simple as that is hubris and is the key driver for inviting the implementers to the table at the beginning, in the middle, and an ongoing basis so that you can actually see what's happening. But you talked about agile policy, and I I fear I kind of dodged that question, but that is what we're going for. The step before that is policy that is made with a different set of people at the table and with a greater humility about what's actually going to happen when that policy hits the real world and far more affordances for adjustment and for not having to make those adjustments always at the top level, 
for empowering people at various levels in the system and in various parts of the ecosystem to instead of saying, I'm hearing exactly, you know, like Yadira said, like I'm being told to do a data extract, instead giving them the power to say, I know what we were all trying to do together and I have the power to make this little adjustment here that I know will be in service of the greater goal, as you said, that we have all agreed upon together. Many parties have agreed on together and we have that clarity. But part of the reason agile development works, and again, I'm in the software development metaphor, but I really mean it in a larger sense, is that not every change needs to be cleared by the top person. You empower people to make changes based on what they see works for users or doesn't work, what they see will work with another part of the system. And you don't always have to sort of clear everything back up at the top level. And of course, you know, in the real world, this doesn't happen. Like it's a myth that everybody's doing exactly what is supposed to be done. I mean, one thing I I didn't get in the book, and this is, I had many, many examples of it is, again, back to a very software development context, but I think this will make sense. You have these programmers who are looking at the code in legacy systems, and you know, there's comments in the code. Very frequently, there will be comments that say, I, as the programmer, could not figure out the policy intent here, so I made it up. Or I was trying to resolve differences in conflicting policy, or there was a formula that actually just didn't add up, like the math didn't work. I made my best guess. So it's a myth that we're actually doing exactly what the policy says anyway. And the reason they're saying that in the code is because they don't have a voice to go talk to the person and say, what did you actually intend here? How could we resolve these differences? Here are the trade-offs you didn't know that you needed to make. Let's talk about them and work them out. So this whole idea that we have a deterministic system in the first place is, is completely bonkers. But it's so hard to accept the reality of a complex adaptive world in which you're not really going to know and you're going to have to work it out with a large set of stakeholders. But that is the world we live in. And everybody in this room, I think, knows that. I always end the podcast with a question, the same question, which is, what is a leadership lesson you learned the hard way? I think a leadership lesson I learned the hard way, and I think it's relevant to many others out there when we think about bureaucracies, is setting expectations. We are not perfect. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, and we need to bring people along to expect some level of failure at the low levels and in small ways in order to avoid larger failure. And if we don't bring them along in the beginning, it hits them from the side and it's much more disruptive than it needs to be. Jen, what a pleasure to have you join us. But please everyone, a warm round of thanks and applause for Jen. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claudia. Buy the book. (laughs) Jen's book, lays out a compelling and inspiring call for policy implementers to make the trade-offs and choices that maximize impact and outcomes. This means learning and adjusting as you go. It means building services that work for people, not for bureaucracies. It means using data as a compass, not as a weapon. 
I'm struck by how much more work we need to do to construct laws and regulations that support and enable this iterative approach. If we don't, we're putting all the onus on implementers to make government actually work for people. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for links to purchase Jen's book or more information on the United States Digital Service and Code for America. There is more information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.